All right, welcome. It's Jeff Mayhew. It's John Beatty. It's Politics and Parenting, where we talk about politics, but we talk about it differently. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Jeff. How are you? I am doing really good. I just got back from my small group, so. <laughs> oh, nice, nice. You know, uh, the prayer life is a little bit like, a, I guess it's like an editor, you know, like someone to help guide you and work you through problems. Like my wife, uh, one of her, one of her great, many great qualities is she's kind of my editor on a lot of things. And uh, I had the joy of being your editor this weekend over your Franklin Pierce article. Yeah, I like that that article. Uh, I appreciate you reading it too. Uh, you know, when you write something like that, or at least for me, is like, I put so much, like, God, that's years worth of work coming together, mm -hmm. realistically, mm -hmm. is what that is. Um, and I was like, you're like excited about it, but you're nervous about it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, there's like a, there's some like Picasso quote about that. Like uh, he draws a couple lines and someone's like, this is crazy. Why am I drawing, paying you for a couple lines? He's like, well, it's a couple lines that you're paying me for my experience. No, there's many <laughs> problems with Pablo Picasso, but you know, like that's an interesting, like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a couple hundred word essay. With, uh, you put some nice illustrations that you found, but um, you know, you can talk more about it, but like, there's a lot of, history that you're bringing into that a lot of research that you've done to kind of understand yeah. the problems yeah and uh you know like my whole thing is when we talked about in the last podcast read as much as possible layered over top and the thing i found while reading history is like reading the antebellum period is really hard because there's not much to read yeah like there's aren't there aren't a lot of biographies there aren't a lot of books on it it's just it's you know, like it's the dead zone right so i've gone out of my way to find information about you know james polk president tyler um uh, who else was there uh, buchanan. james buchanan franklin pierce all these guys that were like the authority of our country mm -hmm. that like they don't have these massive you know biographies like these other guys do and, and i just why i figured it out they were not so great right like they, <laughs> they were not so great leaders they did not so great things and maybe by keeping it hidden we've made our healing more difficult um so i figured let me tell let me tell franklin pierce's story let me like mm -hmm. share a little bit about who the man was um who the leader was and what happened and so uh pierce one of my the things that kind of like drew me into his story immediately was like hearing about his children. He lost all of his children before of age 12, which is just, you know, as a parent, you read that and you just, you feel for that person, right? Uh, him and his wife. And especially in the situation where he lost his last child, uh, he was 11 years old and he died in a train accident while Pierce was like going to be sworn in as president. Now there's a couple different stories that I've read. One says that um, his child was like, they got off to stretch their legs and then the kid was like running to catch up with the train and like Thanks. went to grab and like, you know, went on the train or whatever. And then the other one um, was that the train derailed uh, Franklin and his wife were okay, but the kid was very gruesomely uh, uh, killed. And so you don't know which one, you just know that it happened, right? Um, but it's it's also, it, it puts you thinking, this is what he went through right before taking the hardest job in the world. Think about it yourself and like what you would be going through in that moment. Like how is your decision-making? How is How are you processing grief and stuff like that? Well, Franklin was a alcoholic. He was an alcoholic his whole life. 
um, pretty much from the sounds of what I've read. Um, more like a social alcoholic, somebody that functions very well in society, but kind of makes a fool of themselves at social occasions. And then after this tragedy, he kind of just fell into full-fledged alcoholism. Um, this is the guy running the ship. This is the guy like making the decisions for our nation in this like very per you know precarious moment. You got to remember, right. it was like 1853, right? This is a great compromise, right? Uh, well, so 53 is it? It was the 1850 compromise. Mm -hmm. 1853, um, you know, he's in office. 1850. The aftermath of that it was it, it didn't really didn't really solve all the problems they thought it would solve. Well, I mean, it was it was a very thin compromise, the 1850. I mean, it was it was just holding the threads together. I read recently, like somebody's perspective on it was it just held the union together long enough to build up the ability to save it <laughs> was kind of like the, the way they put it. And I, th I feel like it's a pretty good analogy. Um, so anyways, he he's a supporter of the Kansas Nebraska Act. Um, he's really good friends with Jefferson Davis. Um, Jefferson Davis kind of gets him elected. And you find this story a lot in history and you find it with good leaders and bad. We've told the story of James Garfield's uh, convention victory on this where he was the dark horse. Uh, Polk had a dark horse story. Uh, uh, Pierce had a dark horse story. He literally was not there. He did not know he was nominated. He had no clue he was going to be the, the presidential nominee and then the eventual president. Basically, they couldn't decide on a candidate. You had people like James Buchanan, Lewis Crass, Sam Houston, uh, Stephen Douglas, all vying for the, the candidacy. And they couldn't make a decision because the party was so splintered on basically the debate of slavery. The, even the Democratic Party is splintered on this. And you got to think at this time, there is no Republican Party. There is no real majority party at this point um, to fight them. And so he gets he gets the nomination. And then after that, the party unites, right? And that's what they do after a primary, unite together. And they unite around this very you know, well-spoken, intellectual, educated man um, who has, he's got these, what I would, I would describe him as dashing good looks, mm -hmm. you know, he probably looks really good in a suit and tie. Um, and he's friends with Nathaniel Hawthorne, who is a, you know, a, the novelist. He writes this very generous biography of him uh, which helps raise his standing and he's facing Win Winfield Scott without a strong coalition and without a strong party and um, he, he like mops the floor with him so you got to think if you're Franklin Pierce in this moment and you've you're processing grief not great you're struggling through this dark moment in your life you are kind of not beholden to this man, Jefferson Davis, because Pierce drags him in realistically, but at the same time, he's his like main guy. And if there's anything that reading history has taught me is every authority figure has a guy that they lean on. Like, you know, that's what I tell yeah. people all the time is like when our, the Madisonian Republicans were really born the moment I met you, mm -hmm. right? And, and And because I need somebody to talk to, we all need somebody to like bounce ideas off of to be an author any type of form of authority and you know you see that with jefferson and madison you see that with um lincoln and uh who was it was it chase or stewart i can't remember at this stage but um, um it was no, uh, different, ones at different times 
not Chase. Um, I can, I can picture the guys. Uh, I know, I know. I put you on the spot. I'm sorry. No, it's sorry. Right. Um, it's the Secretary of State. I just know that Seward. Seward, Seward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Seward, and then like uh, James Monroe and John Quincy Adams. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it happens. Um, that is what you know. That's what this was. Franklin Pierce and Jefferson Davis. Well, who's Jefferson Davis? He's just the guy that is kind of the leader of the South. <laughs> he right. goes on to become the president of the uh, president of the uh, Confederacy. Well, anyways, the Democrats come up with this Kansas-Nebraska Act. And basically what the Kansas-Nebraska Act is, it says, let's let the people decide. And, and by what they mean by that is they will tell you they let the people decide, but right. then they use the federal authority. And this is the, like, the place that really frustrates me about like, this whole debate about the Civil War and the like, who were the aggressors. The South were the aggressors in every step, right? You go back to the gag rule in Congress that they instituted. They stripped away your First Amendment rights. They said- In Congress, where you're supposed to be able to say whatever you want and exactly. have all the protections. It, and it, was, and it, it wasn't necessarily the South, but I like what I like to label it is, and I do in this piece is, they were a small elite group of wealthy men. Okay, that's that's what they were. They were Madison's greatest fear because they combined that with the state. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's bad leadership, in my opinion, you know, just because if you're saying, well, look, you know, I'm giving people more freedom to decide for themselves. Well, are you? Because you are what you're allowing a group of people to do is you're allowing a group of people to strip away somebody's First Amendment rights to protest something that is against what we believe is our human right. And you're also telling them that it's okay to go fight and kill other people for it. Um, it's and it's also it's even worse because you're doing under the guise of, of protecting people where you say, like, well, we'll let the people decide. But in reality, you know that the people from Missouri are going to come over and uh, cause trouble and, and uh, affect the election. Yeah. And so like some of my big problems with this happening and like us just, you know, Franklin Pierce, right? So like one of the things that I noticed when I was reading about him is he read Locke's um, essay concerning human understanding, right? Which basically says the human beings are a blank slate and they are a result of, or human knowledge is a blank slate and they are a result of their experiences and whatnot. Well, Pierce read this. He was very influenced by this. How does he not recognize that the people enslaved were just like, it wasn't the fact that they couldn't be equal to us. It's the fact that we weren't allowing them the opportunity, mm -hmm. right? And like, if you think about this in any sense of like thought, like I just, it boggles my mind that he could still support this you know, act in any, pa it, what I would call in a passive way is what he was a passive supporter of slavery because he wasn't out there, you know, advocating pro-slavery. But meanwhile, he was using his authority as president to advocate for what the slaveholders wanted. And he allowed them to use foreign or the federal power to influence what was going on in Kansas, where essentially when you let the people decide, they fought over it. Right. Like what's the precursor to the Civil War? The fact that like people are willing to fight over this. Mm -hmm. 
they had two constitutions in Nebraska. They had two capitals in Nebraska. They had two legislatures in Nebraska. Like, what were you doing? Like, this is an abdication of your responsibility. Your job is to keep the American people safe. Your job is to resolve conflict. And you've basically said, I can't do it. And the reason they said they can't do it is because they had lost. They had lost so long ago. There was no constitutional right for slavery, and there was no moral argument to be made to protect slavery. And so what happened was the Democratic Party, the party that rose to power from Andrew Jackson, had left the Jacksonian idea of government, and it had become its own little power source. And that power source was co-opted by the slaveholders. They were the wealthy elites that were running the country, okay? And so they used this. They crafted this, you know, constitutional idea that it was it was guaranteed and i in the article i explained the three-fifths compromise i quote out a piece from the federalist papers so you can understand like what were our framers thinking about slavery yes they made this compromise but how did they move the football forward well they moved the football forward by making sure that our constitution recognized that slaves were not just property they were people which gave them the right to representation okay mm -hmm. and it was only a matter of time before enough people would see that that you would be able to make the change and you know the argument that the slaveholders made was it was constitutional because it was written in the constitution and you know when they didn't get what they wanted they often used force so we go back to the or go back to nullification with Calhoun. We go back to the gag rule, um, and the argument that they used for secession and for nullification, actually, it's crafted by Calhoun, but it's actually kind of stolen from Webster, Daniel Webster, who was making the opposite. And in his oration, he claims that the Constitution is a compact among states, and Calhoun in rebuttal acknowledges this and he goes, yeah, it is. And I'm the state and I can do what I want. Um, what he doesn't recognize and where they're both realistically wrong is it's not. It's not a compact among the states. It is. It's a federal convention, which means we had delegates from all the states that came together and wrote this constitution. And then we sent it back out to the states to ratify. Mm -hmm. Right. So. It is the people who wrote the Constitution, not the states, okay? The states ratified the Constitution. It is a compact of the people, like Lincoln said, of the people, for the people, by the people. And so this argument that they had crafted was wrong, um, and, you know, they, they, had, they had to know it, right? These are all very smart, educated people. Um, I think the... Like the thread of slavery is connected by Calhoun, right? And he's the one that kind of crafts that state's rights argument and that constitutional argument that the slaveholders use. But by the time you get to Jefferson Davis and all these other people, um, they're not the same. Like they're not making the same argument. Calhoun was making something that he believed his right. Now, he was wrong in his belief significantly, but it is the way that he saw the world based on the old world views. At this stage in the game, in the 1850s, nobody really kind of thinks that way. They've just co-opted his argument and you're using it for their purpose. Right. The same way that the Democratic Party is using their power or the slaveholders are using the Democratic Party, all those coalitions to get what they want done. 
they were overwhelmingly the minority in the country, right? Like how many slaveholders were there compared to actual citizens, right? Very few. Very few, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, white Americans were hurt by this. I know that like, mm. it's something that maybe we don't talk about a lot, but like they wanted the jobs, you know, like, hey, you should be paying people for that labor. You know, maybe maybe they were still racist and they didn't want you to pay the slave, the like black people, but they they wanted those jobs. They wanted to get paid to do that work. So they weren't left in poverty. Um, yeah, it severely depressed the southern economy. And that was one of the problems towards the end of the Civil War was a lot of people in the South were like, why are we fighting this war that really doesn't doesn't make us any better? Uh, and it's certainly it's just enriching a few elites. Right. And, and, and that's 100% what it is. It's just they were a group of wealthy elites. And so like, going back to like, the Constitution and like what Madison's fears were, he was afraid that his biggest fear realistically was the state, not the not the federal government. Um, and he thought like, he feared a state government, like growing inside of its own self like so powerful that it would start to challenge other states and then maybe start to challenge the federal or just leave and kind of break down the whole structure mm -hmm. and um that's where you know he he becomes like a state's rights advocate because he sees what hamilton is doing with the general welfare clause but in reality that general welfare clause was there to protect like itself from the state remember the whole purpose of the government is to protect people from oppression right. okay and so if you are saying the state has the right to oppress people that is not a constitutional principle that is the antithesis to the constitutional principles that we have and it's just you've created this argument inside your own head to protect your own personal interest it is political it is not constitutional and um you know that's that's what happened with the with the slaveholders and and whatnot and like I just found it fascinating, right? Putting all these pieces together, reading, understanding Pierce and just going like, why did we end up where we were? Cause we elected the wrong people flat yeah. out. We just, we elected the wrong people. We, there wasn't enough of the citizenry engaged in what was going on. They didn't understand the issues. And part of that was because the people in charge were manipulating them. They were making arguments that they should have known was wrong. And they kept on doing it. And I can't help but think about like everything that I watch on the news right now. And every argument that I hear, both from the left and the right, is just complete and utter BS, right? And it's like they're making these constitutional arguments. And I wonder if they even understand what the Constitution is. <laughs> Not likely, I would say. I mean, like that was uh, my dad just retired from the government recently and his little speech, he passed out copies of Constitution because he was. It's like, you know, everyone makes his oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, but how many of us have actually read it and kind of understand it? So it's the same point, you know, even if you're not necessarily an elected leader, but it, and if you're just sort of a civil servant working in the bureaucracy, like, you know, do um, do we understand what we are trying to uphold in, in our day-to-day -day work? And I would say probably not for many people. No, no. I mean, and they make it hard, right? Mm -hmm. Because you, you kind of, I mean... You feel like you do because they're saying things that sound right and, and it, it works for you. So you just kind of accept it. But when you when you zoom out and you do the study and you go, oh, my gosh, what is going on here? You know, and um, yeah, I think that's <laughs> um, the other part is, is like 
understand the people, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think so much we like we demonize the wrong people in our society. I, I think a few years ago we had all those, you know, statues being torn up. And Calhoun was one of them, by the way, in South Carolina. Um, now I'm okay with that. I'll be honest. Like he was a he's a complicated man to study because when you read about his like principles on government and you read about his family life, you go, that's a guy I could get along with. That's a guy I could support. And then when you see this completely irrational, like split divide hypocrisy about slavery, you go, no, it's not. Like he was really principled until it got to the one thing that he like was really hardcore about. And then all the principle went out the window. Um, But we should focus more on like, Who's the real good leader and bad leader? You know, like don't demonize our founders like Washington and James Madison and and um, others for owning slaves. I mean, it it's not great, but you know, it was a product of the time. You know, they were literally in in circumstances like I I always think of Jefferson's story where like his first memory is being handed up to a slave on a horse. Like he was born into slavery, like a slave owner as a slave owner, you know, what was he realistically going to do as a child to stop that? Nothing, you know, and you could make the argument that he did a lot to stop slavery simply by writing all men are created equal on the Declaration Mm -hmm. of Independence, writing that down for future generations to work towards, right? And, And go, well, they didn't really mean it. Well, if they didn't really mean it, why didn't they write all white men? Right. Like, because that's the way that people in these situations think is like, we have to write it very specifically for what we believe. Otherwise, future generations could be confused by it. And if you think like, well, why'd they write all men? Well, because deep in their hearts, they did believe that. Right. Like they didn't see it. It wasn't going on in the world, but they absolutely believed it. And, you know, that goes to the point about the three fifths compromise. Right. Yes, it was written in there, but the word slavery wasn't written in there. Right. And it was a recognition of they were human beings. And that Mm -hmm. was really important to happen. Um, So, yeah, we should uh, we should know more about this. We should share. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) It's like the the Civil War is kind of a black hole that sort of sucks everything in on both sides. Like, I think, like, Reconstruction is another area of history that suffers from that sort of uh, lack of, of writing about and um an area that we don't focus enough on schools and studying but definitely the antebellum is could use a more uh study for uh, for all of us yeah absolutely um the one thing that i um what was it uh, i was reading about calhoun today and it was oh so the other thing that like happened that really pe- people don't think about is why were the slaveholders so aggressive in protecting slavery? Well, up until 1833, slavery was kind of just accepted worldwide. Um, in 1833, uh, Britain, they had, in, well, let me back up. In 1772, uh, Lord Mansfield decided that British law was no more slavery, 1772. But it only applied like to the island. It didn't apply to all the territories and everywhere else. So it affected a very small portion of the world total. Well, in 1833, the British government basically acknowledges this for all of their territories. So this like 
starts to really, this is the real abolitionist movement. And um, you get kind of two problems with this. One problem is Calhoun and the slaveholders really start to become hardcore aggressive, right? This is 33. They kind of see this coming. When did you have the gag gag rule? The 30s and the 40s. You think Mm -hmm. this was a coincidence? No, this was a reaction, you know? And um, the other problem is you have this very aggressive abolitionist movement that pops up. William Lord Garrison and others who basically are like, you need to free the slaves now and boom, it should happen overnight. And this is never a great way to govern because if you have to have infrastructure, you have to have plans. I mean, even after the Civil War, we struggled mightily because we didn't have enough infrastructure in place to like deal with this influx of free people um, and you know, having, I don't know, proper protection in place you know, right. for, for lack of a better word, um, to, to help them navigate because they're living in the same place that they were enslaved at realistically. And so without these plans, you can't just go full force to abolitionist movement. And so what happens with this incident is you create the polar opposites, right? Like that's where you get war from is where you have really strong polar opposites, where people just believe things fundamentally so far apart and you cannot find any common ground. You cannot find compromise, right? Any compromises that are made don't really help anyone at that stage. And I think that's what you see through the, you know, through this period and that's, you know, the 1850 compromise, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, those weren't compromises. Those weren't real, you know, things that were going to do anything. They were just buying time for later, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think you layer that over top of what we're going through today, right? Like, where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself on a polar side this way or the polar side that way? Like, do you think it's good to have these polar opposites? Don't you think it's more probable that the answer is somewhere in between, right? Like, we're allowed to disagree with each other, but maybe we should disagree hmm, differently. <laughs> or, or tactically, say, for example, you truly believe something. If you want to bring someone to your side, you do have to kind of reach out grasp hands in the middle and then you know it could be a an arm wrestling of some sort but like there is this mecha- this modicum of if you do want someone to come to see the way that you see the world just you st- standing as far apart from possible is not going to convince them and in fact it, it certainly drives them apart so um there there is a the sort of a practical aspect to trying to find that middle ground so that you can come together and hash it out and you know um depending on the issue you you might feel strongly one way or the other, but I think that that middle ground is the key for uh, someone coming to your side. Maybe you going to their side, depending on the issue. But like, I think that's it's not just um, the fact that that it, the answer might be in the middle, but the answer that getting to the answer requires you getting into the middle in order to actually uh, to figure it out. Yeah, because like you said, like how can you have a conversation with somebody who's so far away from you, mm-hmm. right? Um, at my small group tonight. Um, Adam said, like, shoot, I wrote it down in one of these books. Hold on. He said, better conversations happen with smaller groups. And I'm like, preach it, brother. I get you. Uncap the house, you know? (laughs) But like, yeah, I mean, you, like I talk about a lot, you have to create an environment where you can solve problems. And that's what our government does through the legislative body and all the checks and balances. 
And when you get a side who's willing to strip away those rights that, you know, in the name of their interest, in the name of the state, um, they are not the victim. They're the oppressor. They're mm-hmm. just they're making you believe that because they're trying to build a bigger coalition so they can dominate you completely. And the thing from my article that I really, uh, you know, like is kind of that eye-opening part is where you read uh, read the quote I put in there from is it Federalist 54, Federalist 54, um, where he's like, Madison's like, when you line the legislature, the executive, the Supreme Court, when you line all these up in the name of one, that is but the definition of tyranny. And again, I've talked about this on the podcast. If your federal representative or your president, whether it's Trump, Obama, Biden, Harris, whoever's running for office, if they're like, hey, you need to vote for this person so we can win the House and you need to vote for this person so we can win the Senate so we can get this person on the Supreme Court, what they are asking you for is submission. They're asking you to be a tyrant. They may not even realize it, but that's exactly what they're doing. And as citizens, we should be informed and weary of these these asks from us. You know, that, that was in a uh, fundraising email I think I received it yesterday or today about uh, the, the need for to win back the state Senate because that way you could line it all up and you can pass your agenda and such. Yeah, um, that's not like that's not politics. Like that's not Republicanism. OK, that's mm-hmm. power. Like plain and simple, that is power. They are saying, give me power so I can do what I want, especially when they're just sending you an email. Are they are they coming and talking to you? Are they having a conversation with you? No, they're so far away from you, you'll never get a chance to hear them. Like, wake up. <laughs> like, just wake up. <laughs> one day, one day we'll get better representation. One day we'll get better representation. So, uh, John, I hear that we've had some, like, electric car issues. What's going on with that? Uh, well, uh, going back to everyone's favorite punching bag, Elon Musk has this really cool car company called Tesla that uh, made the electric car cool. So I I have uh, a BMW i3 with a little gas engine in it. Um, and it's kind of from this area of electric cars where it had to be sort of, like, unique and stand out in order to show how... Um, trendy you were and how environmentally conscious um but uh the teslas are interesting because they're like they're actually kind of like more like regular cars that are just electrified so there's just like this big push to electrify all the cars and if you watch the super bowl there was car commercial after car commercial was about electrification but one of the challenges of uh switching your whole infrastructure overnight is going back to being prepared like we're not really prepared for this like i think there's a huge blind side to <clears throat> trying to get rid of every single gas car in the next 10 years when we don't have any infrastructure to charge it up. And, we, you know, and it's not like you can't build charging stations and stuff, but I don't think we're ready as a society and understand like all the implications and all the changes for that. For Like, for example, um, the, the Tesla supercharger network is incredibly efficient. And if you're a Tesla owner, uh, you know, you, they're all over the country, you know, you can plan your trip, you can understand like, well, I'm going to be at this spot, it's going to be 30 minutes to charge, and then I get in my way. But one of the challenges that I've heard about is that there's lines now. So not only are you waiting 30 minutes to charge, but you're behind a couple other cars waiting for 30 minutes to charge. So, you know, um, you know if you do a cross country 
road trip and what was usually a 10 minute stop at a gas station, maybe a little longer if you had to stop into the bathroom and get, or get some food, you know, now it becomes maybe an hour that you're sitting at. Like that's a big change and a big uh, reconfiguration of American society. Um, and I think, you know, that's just something we're not used to. And that's just for the Tesla supercharger network. So one of the things that Tesla is going to do in order to get government subsidies is they're going to open up their supercharger network so that more other car companies can use it, which in it's one sense is great. Off because, the government, baby. That's right. <laughs> you know, like for me as a, as a non-Tesla owner, like that's phenomenal. If I have more options for charging, especially fast charging, but that's just going to make those lines longer. And so now, you know, again, like it just, it'd be good to think about these problems before we just sort of um, uh, impose our government's will top down on everyone in society. Like maybe there's, there's a better approach. And going back to my little BMW i3, it's got the, maybe one of the smallest batteries. It's like uh, basically 70 miles in range, which is good enough for me to be, to get like home uh, to work and back. Um, but it has this little electric of uh, this gas engine in the back of it, which is a tiny little scooter engine. It, the gas tanks two gallons but it allows me to continue going. So I'm not stuck at an electric charger. And I think like that's kind of the way that if we're going to go down electrification, we really have to go with like a, a hybrid approach where we can start going electric and take that as far as possible, but we've kind of got this backstop for fuel. And I think like, you know, long range trucking, um, the, the Norfolk Southern uh, Railroad, you know, those are diesel uh, trains. And so if we, the idea that you could just electrify those is ridiculous. Like they need a lot of energy to pull big train, big loads for long distances. So, you know, let's not get away with fossil fuels immediately. Let's try to introduce things in a, in a, in a free market way where we build cool products that people want to buy like Tesla's see where that takes us, find the gaps. And right now that's kind of charging stations. Like um, if you, you know, uh, it's also just the basic battery technology where if you want to go for long distances, you just have to build in, big chunks of time in your trip that you didn't have to before it you know we can get used to that we can get we can we can shape our environment to get to to make it match us but i think like that's just something we should think about is as we allow um top-down government subsidies to radically alter our life and think about how it's going to affect us in the future well and so like i don't think that people are looking first of all there's a lot of comparison to this and what you're saying of like we need to slow down the progress like measured progress is what we need right? Like build the company out, build the foundation out before you sell the product, right? Like you're going to sell us all these Teslas and all these electric cars, but you don't have the infrastructure for us to actually use them, which is mm -hmm. going to cause a headache. Well, same thing with like the, the abolitionist movement, right? The idea that you can just free everybody just one day because you decide it is like, it, you're going to cause as much or more pain that way than if you would have actually done it in a measured way. And this is the problem that we always have. You have these polar opposites. You've got one that's like, I'm, I'm fossil fuels. Like we, you can't ever take these jobs from us. And then the other side that is like, um, well, no, get rid of all this gas that's, cars that's today. The olden days. It's over already. You need to change this tomorrow. And so like, you got people like Tucker Carlson. I think I saw an interview with him with uh, Ben Shapiro recently where he was like, yeah, use the government to like protect these jobs. And I'm like, what is that? Like, how is that a, a conservative, like small government, limited government guy, you know, like use the federal government to prote protect these jobs? Like, shouldn't you want, I don't know, leaders who, like you said, 
measured progress that plan mm-hmm. these things out. Yes, we're going to lose these jobs, but we're going to gain these jobs. It's going to happen over time. And most importantly, uh, talk to the people. Do the people want this, right? Like, and if 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 you're going to say, all right, well, maybe the people don't know, then inform us. Mm-hmm. Why do we need to wean ourselves off of fossil fuels? Explain it to us and we'll work together with you. But don't just go, hey, uh, you know, this company that pays a lot of money to my fundraising, like they make a lot of cars. And so they want, they want a bigger market. So we're going to, we're going to manipulate the market so they can sell more cars and then they'll be able to donate more money to my fundraising campaign. So this is now your life. Go deal with it. (laughs) Well, the other thing that you hear too, I mean, going back to like trying to inform people is we're going to run out of oil, you know, the, there's not enough in the ground, but like, isn't that the same with lithium ion and all the other rare minerals that go into the batteries? Like we're trade, we're robbing Peter to pay Paul in terms of where the minerals resources that go into in order to uh, power our society. If it's, if it's, uh, if it's not uh, fossil fuels pulled out of the ground, it's lithium ion and cobalt pulled out of the ground. And like, it, you know, it's just like, we're not being rational about this and not try really thinking it through and being like, what am I giving up and what am I getting? And if it's, if you're just trading one thing for another, one problem for another, we're not, we're no better off. And that's where that measured progress and trying to, you know, be patient and, and persevere through something, but um, not take the easy fix and not take the easy solution and really try to make things um, not worse as you're, change, as you're trying to restructure society. Right. I mean, if you're going to make change, right? If you're going to change something, like change is supposed to be for the better, Mm -hmm. right? And if you're not going to think it through and you're not going to plan and you're not going to build a foundation, then the change that you're going to end up with is is chaos, essentially, you know? Um, And and one area where there is measured progress, where we've seen so much uh, benefits over the past, like maybe hundred years, if not more, is farming. Like there were people in the fifties were saying we were going to run out of food with our 3 billion people in the world. And now we're, we're what, close to 8 billion, if not more, and we can feed all of them within excess. I mean, like the amount of food that gets thrown away. Like I worked at a restaurant and we were just shoveling food into at the end of the day into trash cans. And it was kind of just sick and disgusting. And that's why I like my chickens because they eat our food scraps and stuff. But like, you know, there is so much abundance that that is available. And that's just through uh, measured progress in agriculture. And, you know, you can complain about, well, fertilizers and things like that. But overall, in the, I think, even if you're not doing some of those techniques, like we learn a lot and we get a lot better at this and we are able to, um, you know, instead of running out of, instead of running out of food with 3 billion people or running out of fossil fuel with 8 billion people, like maybe there is an, an avenue where we can power the future and, and have a higher standard of living and use less energy. Like, I, I think that's the imagination needs to go in. Yeah. And I mean, like one of the, one of the things that I think about is like, we're going to, we're going to move everything to battery. Right. And, mm-hmm. and everything's got a charge and it's all electrified. Right. Is that going to make the cost of like, to, to like, of my regular living expenses to go up, you know, like now yeah. there's more. Yeah, of course. Right. Like the, to, to the electricity in my house now costs more because where part of the world used to be run off of one fuel source. Now it's all run off of one, you know, um, or, or it used to be different fuel sources. Now it's only one. And this is like, 
this is the principle of authority, right? Like we are man, we are flawed. We divide our authority. We cannot be one singular authority. Mm -hmm. And that goes for any type of business or government structure. All business and government structures should be like, as, as our good friend Craig would say, decentralized, right? Divide the authority and allow, you know, each of us to carry a little bit of that weight. And so like you were saying with the cars, they should be like hybrids, right? They should be hybrid models. That way you can have, um, you know, you don't have to wait in the lines if they're not there. You can get right. to the next one and whatnot, or, you know, plan out where you build the infrastructure before you sell the cars. You make sure that the infrastructure can hold the load, the, the grid load before you put it there, you know, first and foremost. And then at the same time, you should make sure that you're not like, messing up people's lives in the way you know if, if you're going to cause massive inflation because the energy costs go through the roof right which now means that business cost goes through the roof mm -hmm. because now people need to make more money it costs more money to run your business also this one business can benefit remember that like right or like it's for profit like this one group of people that make a lot of money off of this are like they're the ones forking over the money to make these changes making these regulations which why is the government making so many regulations, right? <laughs> it's, it's the car companies and the, the ESG consultants. That, so, the, the consultants. Okay. Oh my God, consultants. <sighs> well, that was a good show, John. What do you think? It was a good show. It was nice to keep it uh, short and sweet. Yeah, we, 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 we had a few long episodes, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, it was good to... to get that out, get that pure story out. Talk about those electric cars that are just like, it, I, I was at Sheets this, this uh, morning and I just, I was like, I felt like I was in a sci-fi movie. Like, he, uh, you remember iRobot? Is it yeah. iRobot or, mm -hmm. um, or like all those cars? Like, that's what I felt like. It was, I was sitting there like, they're all the same color. They mm -hmm. all look exactly the same. It's, it's literally like a, a sci-fi movie. Um, it must have been what like it looked like during like the nineteen twenties uh, or whatever when the Ford Model T was like busting out. Like everybody had the same car. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Not as much personality and uh, at the gas pump. Yeah. Um, all right. So a few things before we go. We have uh, I put out some new content. I got a little show that I put out with my wife uh, where she asked me questions about uh, what I've read. We talk about a little bit of government. I did another one with my son where he asked me questions about history. It kind of started because this is what he does all the time in the car <laughs> while we're driving. So we just put it to the camera. It's got some good information in there. It's on our YouTube channel. You can find uh, politics and parenting. Um, we also got uh, the Franklin Pierce article coming out tomorrow. And John, you've got an article that's fantastic on local government and the importance of paying attention to your local government that should be out by what's today, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday hopefully, uh, hopefully Wednesday. And um we remember we have our next meeting on March 18th. It is representation is communication. So you want to go check that out. You can RSVP at MadisonianRepublicans.com. Uh, remember to subscribe, like, and share. Peace and love. <laughs>